Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to Your Booked, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. We're back after a bit of a break and we're thrilled to be returning to your ears with a new series. If you're listening to this on Monday the 26th of September, you have one more day to order my new book, Burn Before Reading. This is my collaboration with The Pound Project. It's available exclusively from their website and it's my celebration of books – and how they've got me through some of my darkest and most difficult times. I've written it for all readers, especially those who love books, but have sometimes felt discouraged on their reading journey. If I say so myself, it's a bargain at £5. I hope you love it. For sustainability reasons, the Pound Project only print the number of books that get ordered, so once it's gone, it's gone. Also, I'll be at Henley Litfest on Sunday the 2nd of October, interviewing podcast alumnus Nina Stibby and Lessons in Chemistry author Bonnie Garmus. And I'm back on Friday the 7th of October, interviewing another friend of the podcast, Sally Hughes. Tickets are on sale, and if you can't get to Henley, you can stream the events. I hope to see you there. Now, on to today's guest. Andrew Sean Greer won the Pulitzer Prize for Literature with his novel, Less and I'm one of the legions of Les fans who are thrilled that Arthur has returned in his new book, Les is Lost. I adored and revered ASG just as much as his most famous protagonist. We talked about Don Quixote, Beverly Clearly, and which iconic authors have the best second-hand sports equipment. Enjoy. Can we start with um, with Arthur Les and Les is Lost? Um and it was such a pleasure to read this because, you know, these are characters that I've loved spending time with. And all I wanted to do when I got to the end of Less was hang out more. And that's the joy of it being a, a continuation of that adventure. Um, and did you, when you were writing Less, did you think this is a character that I will, you know, I won't be done with this character by the end of this book? Or did a sequel kind of creep up on you? Oddly, both. Often when I finish a book, I don't feel done with it and I want to keep writing it, which is usually foolish. But this one, I thought, you know, I'll just keep making notes on things, you know, chapters I cut. I'll just fool around with them just for fun. And then this was months before I won the Pulitzer Prize. And then when I won it, my agent Congratulations. Yes. Well, it was a while ago. Yes. Thank you. My agent said, I hope you're not working on a sequel, Andrew. You can't do that now. 
And I was like, okay, I won't write a sequel. So I worked, I started working on another novel entirely. That was sort of a road trip novel across America. And it was failing. And <laughs> I thought, if only I had pre-made characters who could be foolishly but lovingly chided on their journey and an elderly author who could be gruff and wise. And I thought, I already have those characters. Why am I, why am I, you know, reinventing the wheel? That was the solution. And it, I'm so glad I did it. Me too. I'm absolutely delighted. Um, are there any other books that you've really loved about road trips or train trips or any other long journeys? I love Graham Greene's Travels with My Aunt. I think that is, it's one of his entertainments that he he thought of as, as, as silliness, but those are my favorites. And it's there's something life-affirming and brutal about it that is just a, a joy for me every time I read it. And uh, when did that book find you? When did you come to it? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, it must have been 30 years ago, but it was a used bookstore find, you know. Those were in my impoverished, unpublished author days of going into dusty stores and just picking whatever appealed to me, which is still my favorite way to do it, I gotta say. Oh, so what was your most recent find in a used bookstore? Well, these days, because um, I live part of the time in Italy, their used bookstores are no good for me. <laughs> so my <laughs> friend Daniel Handler, who's also an author, um, lives here in San Francisco, and he will send me books. And they are his used bookstore finds. Because th that's what we used to do, is just go to bookstores and hand each other things. There was a, a, a Marguerite Dura book, ravishing that I'd never heard of. Oh, and someone just handed me um, an uh, A.B. Um, Yehoshua, Israeli author who died just a few months ago, sadly, a book called Journey to the End of the Millennium, which is like a first century A.D. Jewish merchant in France adventure tale. I just loved it. I, I don't know that book or that author at all, but that no, sounds brilliant. Yeah. Oh, it's so fun. It's so fun. You know, I often think with a lot of books, there are things that I, some, sometimes I pick something up and I feel a little bit resistant or hesitant or like, oh, I know I should read this. And then it's fun. And I want to say, no one told me. All I ever have to hear is like, it's fun. I mean, I'm in. That's all I want. You know what I found during the pandemic? I thought I'm going to reread all of my American literature class because my narrator is an English literature professor. So I, I, re I had never read Moby Dick. And so I picked it up and no one had told me it was fun. No one had mentioned that it was hilarious, comedy, super fun. And I read it like, I think in a day and a half, I couldn't put it what? down. It's a hoot. <gasps> Please, they need to do an anniversary edition. Andrew Sean Greer. I couldn't put it down. It's a hoot on the it's Moby Dick jacket. <laughs> hey, I highly recommend it. And skip any chapter you want to. <laughs> Do you ever decide not to finish something when you're reading something and think, no, that's it. I can't go on. Or is it always a, I will get, I will return to this eventually? Oh, no. I give up all the time. I, you know, I worked in a bookstore for years and the bookstore owner, who's my best friend's mother, my best friend who lives upstairs, um, she would always say to readers, she was like, it's your book. You don't have to finish it. You can, she's like, I skip to the end. Murder Mysteries, I skip to the end. And then I see whether I want to read it. You know, that the reader is totally in power. I give up all the time, especially because as a writer, I'm looking for inspiration. And it can be a fabulous book, but it's not helping me right now. 
So I put it down. Do you read when you're writing? Is there a way that you can keep the story that you're you're writing and creating living separate from what you're reading? When I'm working deep in a book, um, I read for the writing. So I'm only reading books that are are getting me excited or making me envious or making me look at a new way to do storytelling. So I will have a pile of maybe just five books that I read and reread just for that book. Um, and Travels with My Aunt was one of the books for Less is Lost, and things like Travels with Charlie by John Steinbeck, the um, Durrell books, um, My Ooh. Family and Other Animals, you know, those those all had the tone I wanted of just sort of intelligent joy. I used to work on a, a teen magazine, this is a very teen mag question, um, which authors would you most like to be in a car with on a road trip? Honestly, like I mostly think of living authors because I think like if you try to take a car ride with Proust, you keep ex- you'd spend the whole time explaining what the internet was or like what a <laughs> cell phone was, it would just take forever for it to be any fun. Um, Imagine, so- oh I was just laughing at this meme, what? <laughs> I just think, like, even Dorothy Parker or something. I mean, she might be hilarious on a road trip. Dorothy Parker, if you if you kept a whiskey bottle with you. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I find most contemporary writers I meet are, are great fun to be around. I think Colm Toybean would be great on a road trip. He would keep you endlessly entertained. He'd be a good Proust um, substitute. And I think Edmund White is a great storyteller. People like that who are great... Um, not just great novelists, but great storytellers would be a good companion. I suppose to be a storyteller is to to always have a, a reader or an audience or a listener in mind. And sort of to be a novelist is quite, that seems much more interior somehow. I think that's a really interesting distinction. I think you're, I mean, because you have probably noticed that a lot of novelists are not great storytellers. We can be tight-lipped because we spend so many years carefully crafting what we want to say that we're not a wit at the table. We're listening, but but there's some novelists who are. I think Colm Toybean really is one of them. I'm assuming you've you've had the pleasure. I never have. Oh yeah, I I have. Um, he's he's just uh, he's a good friend. During you know during this pandemic, we've lost contact with so many people, and anyone who I don't live in a city with or in the same time zone with, I don't get to talk to. So I've I've emailed him back and forth, but I haven't seen him in person in years. You know, I love the idea that it's still a, a connection. And yeah, it's complicated, isn't it? Because we have how this has changed us, but also, you know, that we can have this sort of this correspondence and think of people at odd moments and be with them in a way we couldn't before, I suppose. Well, and now I've learned to, if I have the impulse to contact someone, I just, I email them or text them instantly because we all have this, um, dark sense of time's passage now and like there's no time to waste if there's you know if someone says we're having a rooftop party with champagne you're like yes i'm going to that party because there may never be another party you know we've all learned it it's like the lesson we should have known all along oh of course i would love to ask you about your relationship with books and the first books that you really responded to as a reader, is there anything that you can remember being drawn to and picking up and thinking, this book was written for me? I I remember reading Watership Down by Richard Adams, you know, the big book about rabbits, because it was the big first big book I read. And it was 
stunning because it's this whole world of rabbits and their mythology. And I remember also noting, I'm sure I was 10 years old, that the first line is something like, the primroses were fading in the fields. And then the last line, 300 pages later, is the primroses were starting to bloom. And I thought, oh, there's an author. Someone made a pattern. It's not just a story everyone, because before that it seemed like a story everyone knows, mythology, but I was like, this someone's telling this in a certain way. And that really struck me. I think that's my first writer's moment too. That's really interesting, isn't that as a, I suppose, a kind of a framing device in a way that it's not about just the words of the story and what happens, but that the power of an author saying, I want you to be in this frame of mind and I want to return you to this place. And it's really, a, you know, a kind of a simple thing to do, but it's such a powerful thing to do. It, I mean, I, I tell my students about it all the time. Like, they're worried that they don't have a story to tell. And I say, don't worry about that. Just worry about how to tell it. We all know people who are great storytellers. My friend Elna Baker, she's a great storyteller. And I always think like, oh, amazing things happen to her every day. But that's not it. It's that she's a great storyteller. It's the, it's the way she does it. What is your favorite book to teach? Well, because I teach in a weird way. I teach little parts of books to give, to give students uh, 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 a variety. But I love teaching Mrs. Caliban by Rachel Ingalls. Which oh, I don't yes. know if you even know that, but it was sort of reissued recently. Mm. And it is, it'll sound like The Shape of Water, that movie, but it was written long before about a housewife in England who um, hears about a sea monster who's escaped from a lab and he comes into her house and she feeds him and has an affair with him. And it's fantastic. And it's also, it's simple. And the students can see the different threads of plot as they go along and how they resolve. And like a little sexy sea monster scenes. And I just, yeah. Oh, that sounds awesome. Uh, I mean, just teaching, does it ever sort of change your relationship with a book? Because it must be interesting to kind of, you know, read, read to read as a reader and have a very intimate connection with something and then think, no, there's something about this story that sort of illustrates something and that will sort of help writers grow. Um and I suppose how you choose your, you know, what you read and whether there's anything that you've sort of grown to love more through teaching it. That's a great question. I mean, I think with my students, they're worried that it's like taking apart a, a watch. All the pieces are on the table, but it doesn't work anymore. But that that doesn't bother me anymore. Um, I think teaching books, even something that we think of as a classic like Rebecca by um, Daphne du Maurier, and we think of the film, when you reread that book, it's really well done. Like you see how carefully crafted it is, not just to be a gothic horror or a gothic novel, but to be this magical memory story. I've really grown to respect Daphne du Maurier. I think she is so as a great storyteller. And I think for want of a better word, she's very accessible I think you really enjoy reading her and you don't sort of have to she doesn't make you come to her she's there for you and I think those writers like that because they don't feel hard there's a sense that what they're doing is easy when there is so much you know sort of effort and craft and talent you know yeah. behind that I think the the easier something is to read the harder it's maybe been to write sometimes well, I think Raymond Chandler is a great example of that mm. because he's seen as, you know, a, a Philip Marlowe, Humphrey Bogart book. Those books took him 
years and years. I think he only wrote four Philip Marlowe novels, the, each one a masterpiece, because he, because he wrote the, the way literary writers write. He felt his mm -hmm. way through it the whole time, and every sentence is fantastic. It, they're, they're works of art, but you don't read them that way. You mm. read them as a, as a thriller, you know? Because you want to know who yeah. done it. And why done it? But the thing about the big sleep is you never find out who done it and you don't care. <laughs> mm. Something I really am excited to ask you about is funny books. I am, you know, in awe and delighted that you won the Pulitzer Prize with an extremely funny book. And funny books are the books I love the most. What are the funny books you love? And can you remember the first time that you realized the books were allowed to be funny? Because I think that's quite a big deal, especially when you're a kid. Yeah, when you're a kid. There were, you know, there were sort of ki American kids books that were um, like be by Beverly Cleary, an author you won't know. but it was No, I love Beverly Cleary. Yeah. And I grew up reading the Ramona books from the library. And I remember a beautiful one she wrote called 15. And it's just about a teenage girl. And it's maybe set in the 50s. But it's kind of, it was like the PG-13 Grease for me. And I probably still know that book off by heart. I don't know where I found it, where I got it from. I mean, the, all those books, some of them are really like stunning, but definitely the Ramona books are funny, you know, in the Henry Higgins books, those are funny books, um, or at least they were to me, or there was a book, Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing. That Judy Bloom. Judy Bloom. And so, and that one was so funny to me because I was a fourth grader reading it and the idea of being of this sort of, now I look back and it's this sort of woeful, depressed, world-weary fourth grader. It's a really funny concept. Um, I think, I'm sure that's where I, I first saw the idea. And I loved that. And I have to say, funny books are, funny books are, are, aren't rare, but ones you really love and connect with are somehow rare, even though um, there's a grand tradition of it. I mean, Don Quixote is a super funny book that mm. also fun highly recommend and skip any chapter you want to but it's really really it it surprised me how funny it was i mean we don't have to read it in the antique spanish so we get to have these delightful translations even you know the philip his early philip roth books are super funny um john updike's beck books are funny this will sound ridiculous to you but as americans we don't often come across cold comfort farm which i read only last year and that book, of course, is hilarious. Wonderful. Oh, it's like nothing else. And also, it's ridiculing a genre of fiction we're not even aware of mm. anymore, the pastoral romance. And somehow it, it, it transcends that ridicule into something brand new. I was laughing and laughing. And, and I thought, where has this book been all my life? No one told me. <laughs> But isn't that just so incredible, the way that books wait for us? Is there anything you have been meaning to get to forever? And not, I mean, I imagine you, you know, read at a, a rate of knots and have read, you know, pretty much everything in the world as a, a teacher of books, but and a teacher of, you know, writing and reading fiction. No, I'm a terribly slow reader. I'm notoriously slow. My friend Daniel, he'll read a book a day and it can take me you know, like I'm a, like normal people, like a month and a half. So usually every summer I try to give myself a big book, but I have not been able to get Dostoevsky going. Can't get that motor running. So I've got to give another crack. 
to to crime and punishment are the the brothers Karamazov. I hear Dostoevsky is supposed to be funny in places. I, that's shocking to me. <laughs> I it just seems so humorless. But I but also I haven't read it and I haven't tried in twenty years. I I bet it would be really different to me now. Also, I I keep meaning to go back to Ada or Ardor by Nabokov just to give it another go because people say. It's really fun once you let go, because um, he has such fun with language. If I'm trapped again somewhere, I'll bring Ada or Ardor. But I suppose, we do, do fantasise, I suppose, about having unlimited time to read. And then kind of, you know, we all had it, I guess. We did. Like lots of people I spoke to. And I think we all had this of sort of, ne- you know, we were reading constantly, but we were reading the news and we were sort of filling our heads with information that wasn't necessarily helpful and finding it harder to kind of immerse ourselves in imaginary worlds. I had the strangest response at the beginning of the pandemic because, you know, I didn't pick up Dostoevsky. I picked up Agatha Christie and I read every single one of those books. It's just such a balm. And I picked up P.G. Woodhouse, which I'd already read, and I read every single one of those books just because you know exactly what's going to happen and yet it's new every time it's it's that was very comforting for me i didn't need any more surprises i often feel that way and i wanted to ask you about rereading and you know whether you feel sometimes i think it is in the rereading of something that you're aware of of technique and how something has been done and the way that you're being nicely manipulated by an author. I think it's a really great learning experience, even when it's P.G. Woodhouse, which you think is, you know, maybe like, well, what can you learn from P.G. Woodhouse? I would say lots. Oh, you can. I mean, he withholds information a lot, and that's part of the joke. Um, You don't know why the bush is talking um, to Bertie Wooster. It takes you back to yourself, too, who you were when you read the book and how you're, you've changed. I think that's a, a pleasant experience. Because I'm rarely disappointed when I reread. I find it even deeper than I did before. And I love it. And, and it's nice to get older and give myself the permission to do that and not know the whole bestseller list and the prize winners or anything, but just go back to favorites. Because now I'm at a point where I'm not going to read it all. There's not time left. So I'll read what I want. I think that's so true. And sort of knowing, you know, sometimes I think about if I could only sort of have one book or, or five books and that was it. And I, I think I would I would choose books I already know I love. What are the books you already love? Nancy Mitford. Um, I'm sure you've come across her, oh, but yeah. talking about P.G. Woodhouse um, and Cold Comfort Farm. And I think she's, you know, one of our funniest writers. Um I, lo- I really, really love the Irish author, Marion Keyes. They are about the darkest, deepest, pa- most painful and amazing subjects. And she writes beautifully about grief and about addiction and about, you know, the sort of all the emotional complexities of that, but with such wit and warmth and lightness of touch. Oh, that's great. Are there any particular Christie's or Woodhouse's that you love the most? Oh, well, I mean, I think I always loved what's called the Catnappers, the Woodhouse book in the US. I think it has a different um, title in the UK, they often did that. I don't know why. You know, like there's one called Summer Lightning that is called Fish Preferred in the UK, which is a better title. <laughs> Fish Preferred? Fish Preferred. Oh, that's great because I've, I do have, or somewhere at home there is an edition and it is called Summer Lightning. So um, 
I think it's fish preferred. The catnappers. That one, there's like a a silver creamer and a horse that has to be hobbled. So that, you know, what's his name? Gussie Fink Noddle doesn't have to marry the, you know, that kind. I just, it was one of the first ones I read. And so it's still close to my heart. Oh, I I think that's incredible, isn't it? The first time when you just don't know what you're in for and you're in for so much joy. I've just checked. um, I do think the UK title is better. Aunts aren't gentlemen. Oh, that's great. <laughs> oh, yes, because it's all about his aunt and his, and the cook who's going to leave. And yes, it's great. When did you first sort of come across Agatha Christie? Because it's such, I mean, she follows such a sort of a, a specific form and there's such a specific mood. Did you read those books sort of as a, as a young adult or a teenager? Because they're quite a, um, I mean, no, no, she's sort of, you know, internationally renowned, but they're also so, so British, I guess, if we can claim her. <laughs> Right. And I think when you're a young American, it seems wildly exotic um, and and mysterious and from another era, even though I look back now and I think, well, I wasn't born so far after Agatha Christie was writing them about as far as we are from my birth. Uh, I must have read them as a young adult. I didn't really fall in love as much until college because I think I had to get over prejudice of murder mysteries or something like that. And now having reread so many, I really admire, I can really admire her craft. And I can see they're actually not as meticulously plotted as you think. You get the sense that she's actually making it up as she goes along even more brilliantly. You know, she doesn't quite know who did it. She's just following um, her storytelling sense and she keeps it simple. And my best lesson I've learned from her is to not name two characters with the same first letter because readers will screw them up. She never does that. Ah, very important you know, thing to have in one's mind, especially when, when, when one is doing one's copy editing. Are you good at guessing? Do you know, can you always work out who, who the villain is? Never. I am absolutely, I'm always the, um, whatever it is, the colonel of er- to Hercule Poirot. I forget his friend's name, who always gets it wrong. I'm always, I always think what he thinks. So I'm, I'm a terrible detective, which is great for reading them because she also does the great thing of you figure it out a half second before she tells you. And that's very pleasing because it makes you feel clever, but you, mm. you, you don't think like, well, I'm, now I know where it's going. And that's, I've learned that trick from her. In fact, unless there's a surprise at the end and I tried to make it so the reader figures mm. it out just before you t- you're told. I mean, it's the incredible thing, isn't it? Because you sort that feeling, always wanting to feel as a reader that you're in on it, but also wanting the delight and the novelty and that thrilling shock. It's, it's such a satisfying feeling. I bet there's a great German word for it, which uh, Les probably knows. <laughs> also, do you, do you speak German? Do you write Not, in German? Have you? No, no, I did take German lessons, um, but I found it... I was I was living in Germany and I found after three weeks of lessons, I still couldn't get a loaf of bread at the local market because it's such a steep learning curve that I thought, I don't have time for this. Life's too short. Yeah. So I gave up. But I do speak Italian. And so I'm able to think of a very bad Italian. Um, I'm able to think of uh, how I must sound to Italians and um I transfer that to less is German. Do you read in Italian? I have been reading in Italian, yeah. Actually, I find it much easier to read novels than the newspaper. The newspaper is full of, like, 
celebrities from the 70s who I don't know. But the novel, even though it's set in a tense that's difficult for me, the sort of far ancient past tense, I sort of know how it's going to go. I've been reading Natalia Ginsberg. Do you know this author? No, Natalia Ginsberg. Oh, here's a great fun one. Quick one. It's called Family Lexicon. Lexico Familiare. And it's it's just a quick book. It's a memoir of her time her, with her family in Turin. And it's sort of like the Durrell books. Like, they're hilarious. Although World War II is happening in the background. It's just brilliant. Oh, that sounds really glorious. Because obviously, I have read the, the Neapolitan books in translation. And yeah. I love them just as much as every other 30-something white woman. Um <laughs> But the, you know, there's lots of, you know, darkness sort of in the background permeating those books. And then a couple of summers ago, I found another. It was a Europa and it's called A Girl Returned by Gloria de Petriano. Oh, I don't know that one. But it's another story about the sort, I suppose, the north-south divide in Italy and money and poverty and wealth. And it's kind of a coming of age tale. And I loved it. And it's got that odd sort of unsettling, aching darkness. But, you know, I, th- I think it's also translated by Anne Goldstein. Wonderful. Well, I think it's Anne Goldstein is is the is a brilliant writer. The Italians who, who speak English do say that uh, her translations are are as good as or better than than the originals to them. I mean, that's something that fascinates me is how much of a story you gain and lose in some because of you know translations not being literal and kind of in the retelling and thinking I suppose of you know Murakami being an enormously popular and highly regarded author who is obviously in translation I heard that the main translator writes in quite a sort of a measured way but there are other English translations of his work where the sort of the sentences are much shorter and some of the tenses are different and it's it is a subtly but noticeably different reading experience. I would love to try that because here's my guilty admission is that I never got into Murakami. I, I, something about it, I just, I wasn't the moment for me. And so I'd love to try another translation because I'm, apparently I'm, I'm missing something fantastic. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
We'll be back with Andrew soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I read this book six months ago and I haven't shut up about it since. Sunny by Souk Ojla is the story of a woman who is staring down the barrel of her thirties, single and redundant, having returned to the home of her strict Sikh parents. It's a story of gin in a tin in a drawer, noisy celebration, quiet despair, choosing yourself, friendship and KFC. It's beautifully and vividly written, properly funny, and I think of Sunny so often that I want to leave her WhatsApp voice notes before I remember she's not actually real. Sunny is published by Hodder and out now. Now, back to Andrew. But are there any books that you have sort of, you know, once loved and maybe feel differently about? I think a lot of us feel that way about Lolita, you know, Mm. which certainly was always one of my favorite books and I defended for for decades and now I feel like I would not I still love it but I'm not going to make students read it I just feel differently about it than than I did before also I've read it so many times that there's other Nabokovs that I can enjoy but it's that's sort of a sad feeling a favorite like that now I I feel could could really be painful for someone. It's really weird, isn't it? Because I read that, I think, as a teenage girl. And sort of only now do I realise that lots of what I took from that, and obviously, you know, I would never ever, you know, dream of sort of, you know, you can't accuse Nabokov of of grooming his readers, though he was, you know, it was an experiment. It's a work of literature and a work of invention. There was no intention there. But, you know, as an impressionable young woman, you know, I I do remember taking lessons from it that perhaps I shouldn't have taken from it and there are with sort of lots of you know films and other trying to think of other sort of examples of that in literature I think I feel a little bit that way about Martin Amos who I was so oh I must be very sort of like you know detached and ironic and numb and he can be very 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 funny but I think that a little more compassion and warmth and wisdom in the narrative would be nice well like I tried to read um John Updike's um rabbit series and i and i'm a big updike fan but the i tried the first one and it's just this is true of roth sometimes too Mm. is not is not writing women as human beings and you just it's you can't get past that on the page like there's a lot of we're all used to reading old books and Mm. and not forgiving but compartmentalizing and understanding this part is completely offensive to me, to people I know, but I understand how to do that. I mean, as a gay man, that's all there was in literature. So I learned how to do that. Um, but these days I feel like I don't, it's really hard to read something like Rabbit Run and have him, um, this, or in the, his Beck book, he describes like an African American woman as having a hairdo like a loaf of bread. And I was like, Oh, come on, man. That is yeah. What? Because it's just bad writing. It's just that is completely jarring in every way. It's jarringly uncreative and and cliche more than it is offensive. And that's mm. that's what can be very upsetting. And Roth and the Human Stain, which is a fantastic book, complicated in racial subjects. When he gets to a chapter that, from the point of view of a woman, it's a disaster. His imagination fails him, and that's like an artistic problem. I really noticed. Um definitely in 2020 um and the conversations we're having about I was like I read way too many white people there are not enough voices there's not enough sort of breadth and range and there are you know so many books I've read about people who 
lived experience is so different from mine but certainly in the UK it feels as though there's more space and more appetite and it's obviously at the very 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 beginning of something and we have such a long way to go still but um I'm thinking of the joy and delight um I had reading um The Vanishing Half by by Britt Bennett and um Teori Jones I loved American and American Marriage is it called American Marriage and American Marriage um yeah but I really loved uh, Silver Sparrows which I think was her book before that yeah I think there's a long overdue corrective that's happened these writers have been here all along and and suddenly uh, there's there's some space which means also that authors like me need to step back a little <laughs> with humility and give that space with, you know, that in mind, I mean, what I think is really interesting about Less is Lost, without, give, again, giving too much away, and also it comes up in Less as well, so it's not giving anything away about kind of, uh, what does he call it? It's like the the wrong kind of gay writer or writing the wrong kind of gay story. He's or bad gay. Bad gay. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was that that's such an interesting idea. Please correct me if this is not how you want to be described. And this is, but as I said, you know, to, to have a... a a queer love story in the mainstream I think is so huge and powerful and brilliant but you know as a, a sort of a younger reader or even a reader younger than you are now were there any I suppose you know queer stories or stories where you where you saw yourself for the first time with someone who was sort of you know living a life that you recognized that you weren't seeing in in the canon I will say that there were, by the time I sort of came of age, around 18 years old, 1989, there were, there were plenty of books. In the, in, the, in the early 70s in America, there was a lot of gay male fiction that was being, that was sort of popular until AIDS came along and then no one wanted to read that stuff. But I couldn't identify with it. It was so depressing, super sexual, like moody, the sun never seemed to shine. And I just didn't understand that. And then I read a book called Blue Heaven by Joe Keenan, who became a... I've a read tel- that book. Have you read it? <laughs> I barely remember it. But for some reason, my parents had it and I found it as a teenager. And I just remember being so riveted and so entertained. And also it being a book that I was like hiding because like, if anyone knows I'm reading this, I'm in so much trouble. Yeah, because it's it's hilarious. You know, it's a Woodhouse book. It just happens yes. that there's gay characters and that's part of the fun of the plot. And I was like, oh, it could be fun. No one told me it could be fun. I thought it had to be dreary and, and sweaty and naked and suicidal. But if it was just like, uh, you trying to pull off a diamond heist, then I'm in. And that book showed me a possibility. And I've been in touch with that author um, on social media. But you should go back and read Blue Heaven. It's oh, been I a should. long time. It's great. And, and then he wrote the TV show Frasier. So that's where he oh! went. Yeah. I had no idea that that was, yeah. the, that was the connection. That's probably like why my parents ended up with it. We were all Frasier fans in our house. I read and loved the Tales of the City books as a teen. I also reread those books all the time and I love them still. Were they books that you noticed or cared about or avoided? <laughs> oh, yes. No, I, I, I came across those in college right after Joe Keenan. I ate them up because those were also were books where it was it was not a gay world it was it's the world i'm in right here san francisco it was everyone together there were there were trans people and lesbians and and high society and cannibal you know uh it was you know it's just a wonderful stories that were full of of joy oh god marianne and buck and the cannibals and grace cathedral and you're like (laughs) 
I honestly, I'd be really, really happy to read a book that is just the the Halcyons and Franny getting drunk and reports to the parties, and you know Michael, you know, seeing people and falling in love and having adventures. But then you're like, no, 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 we're bringing in some cannibals for you. I just thought that was the best. He was. I mean, I think so many of us are here in San Francisco because of those books. He invented a fantasy about San Francisco that we came to make come true in in the 90s because he wrote them serially in the in the in the newspaper and in, in starting in the 70s and imagine how brave that was just to produce a world where everything was normal and kooky and possible um without any of the uh, the pathos of of the other literature at the time i love them and um and i've met him in fact my yoga mat, he, he left San Francisco and had a yard sale and I bought his yoga mat. So every day I do my yoga on Armistead's uh, yoga mat. I love that so much. Plus, um, I am no yogi. And if I had Armistead's mat, I would be doing it every day. Well, I wonder how much of a yogi he was. <laughs> it <is. laughs> it's like yoga mat never used. <laughs> $10. How much did you pay for it? Can you remember? $3. Oh, that's a bargain. Yeah, yeah. Just thinking about San Francisco books, um, I've just read one called We Run the Tides by Vanilla Vida. Oh, it's, it's so fantastic. It's so wonderful. I just love that book. I mean, it captures a moment before I came here, which was the, uh, that creepy moment in the 70s, 80s, when things were very dark in San Francisco. I just love that, the shift and that weirdness. I was sort of born in 85, so I guess the first child of parents when pe- when parenting was not like go outside and play and don't come back till dinner time and parenting right. was becoming really anxious and competitive and focused and obviously there is I think you know in the US different again because of you know Reagan and I think we had a sort of watered down factory Reagan light but yeah that's the that shift from we don't care at all to we're so anxious and we're so controlled and I mean also as well because I would um if uh, money with no object and also if I could time travel which you know you could probably help me with because you're you're good at that in your books um maybe not in the late 80s but I would love to live close to the cliff house as I possibly could um but not near the tech billionaires because I think I'd find them quite frightening yeah no they they don't live out near there yeah so you'd be you'd be free of that it's really it is beautiful out there though the the world she describes that's I don't think it's lost forever, but definitely that parenting is lost forever. That Or that kind of childhood, which is the one I had, which was just wander and discover and get, feel a little danger, but also come out safely. It's in movies, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's an E.T., but it doesn't exist at all. Uh, do you have any other favorite San Francisco books or California books? You know, I'd say um, I thought a really great book. It's by my friend Daniel Handler again, who's, who's a children's author, is Lemony Snicket, but as an adult author, he's Daniel Handler. And he had a book, Bottle Grove, which describes uh, a, a part of San Francisco you would have never been to and kind of describes the, the tech moments rise and its effect on romance and money and power structures. And it's really a thrilling book and captures something I think no one else has got yet. Are there any places you visited because you visited them first in a book and loved them so much that you had to go and check them out? Or when writing this, all the places that Les goes to, were there any 
any sort of locations or stops in the route where you thought, I really want an excuse to go here or, you know, go back here and take some notes? I mean, absolutely. There were places that I, I went to by chance, like Morocco, and places I specifically tried to get. I didn't have any money, so I would try to um, pitch it to an um, airline in-flight magazine so that they would send me there. And that was Japan and India. Those were two places I had always longed to see. And that's how I, I got to those places for the book. And I've been back to both and I'm longing to go back to Japan. I think that was, that was the country I'd always read about in books and I needed to see what it was really like. And I still haven't explored at all. You know, obviously India, I haven't, but maybe because there's a big Indian community here that I felt I had a sense of like, when I went there, I was like, oh, I, I see how that connects. But yeah. even though there's a Japanese community here, the country itself doesn't, it's separate. So what are the books that made you want to go to Japan? Maybe it's because I took a, like a Japanese literature class. So I read all the sort of tale of Genji and the pillow book and the, um, and um, Kawabata. I remember reading The Old Capital, which is about Kyoto. And then actually went to Kyoto and stayed in Kawabata's room in a, in a ryokan and realized he was describing the garden I was looking at in the oh, room. Hey. And I just burst into tears because it was something I read in a book years before. And now, by surprise, it was before me. Because he said the heart of Kyoto is this tree with the rain on it at a certain time of day. And they had arranged for me to have Kawabata's room. And it just occurred to me when I looked into the garden that that's what it was. I was looking at the heart of Kyoto that I'd read. It was just one of those crazy moments. Yeah. Oh, how extraordinary. Oh, how beautiful. I think, you know, when people talk about quantum physics, I'm not sure about this analogy, so bear with me. But those moments are sort of this idea that atoms are constantly moving and then at random they can sort of arrange themselves in such a way that laws of gravity and physics and all the rest of it are sort of suspended or distorted and you're in several places at once and I think I think that's what we have as readers and as writers for sure that Einstein called spooky movement at a distance I think that's what that's what can happen in a book you can have this and the reverse happens where you read something in a book Proust this happens all the time mm. where they say something you did not remember about your own life mm. and it cut about an emotion or even the way a glass looks when it's half full of wine and mm. suddenly you're it you've, you're time traveling to your own past and it's that experience is just something i rarely find in in tv or or mm. film yeah um, theater i do as a as a reader you know we have we have work to do and it's good worthy work but we have to meet the words where we are and i think on screen everything is being given to us I did remember this is probably a lot less poetic, but I have the same thing, sort of. Um, Truman Capote, uh, one of his, uh, he wrote a, an essay, I guess, about uh, going to New Orleans. And that I can't remember what it's called, but that place, it's like a big sort of like open marquee. It's like a tent and it's a cafe and they're very grumpy and the, the beignettes with all the icing sugar on them. Oh, yeah. And that was when I was cafe sort of reading that. Yes. And I didn't, and it was only when I was there and eating my donut, I was like, oh, I... I've been here before. Uh, isn't that, that's magnificent. Yeah, it's your own Madeleine. Yeah, a very sticky <laughs> Madeleine. <laughs> Can't have too many of those. It's interesting that, that in theatre you have those 
moments. And I suppose and that comes up in the book as well, that this sort of the experience of having, you know, less seeing his his work adapted. Oh, God, and I, that reveal is just so hilarious so and so brilliant. And I won't say anything. <laughs> if you're listening, you must read it. It's just, it's so great. Is there anything that you would love to adapt for theatre or have you adapted anything for theatre? I haven't. I, I, I would love to. Um, and I keep being tempted to, but I... My agent keeps saying, just keep writing the books, Andrew. Don't become a playwright. It's its own kind of horror show. You know, you don't want to get involved in Broadway. But I do know a lot of writers. Zadie Smith just did it, right? Like she she did something in theater. It's a way to stretch your mind in a different direction that's similar because the audience still has to do work. You know, they're inventing all the props and trees and this, the other wall around. And I love Zadie Smith so much. Um, I've just read, this is where my brain sort of turns to fudge. What, what the hell did I just read that I loved so much? Um, and he was, wasn't a novelist. I think that was the only thing he didn't do. Um, Mike Nichols. Oh my God, yes, Mike Nichols. <laughs> um, it's that book and it's a big book and it's I suppose, kind of like an oral history. And the subtitle is sort of Mike Nichols as remembered by a hundred of his closest friends. Oh, I've got to read that. Uh, but that made me want to write plays and Seymour plays and that's such a an evocative and fun and I mean it's not all fun obviously it had its ups and downs that man but um yeah about a, a real love letter to to theatre and to writing there was I also when I was working on Less is Lost I was very I was struggling a great deal as one does and I read James Lapine's story of how he made the musical with Stephen Sondheim in um, Sunday in the Park with George. And it's fascinating because you see an artist at work on something they don't know what it's going to be or if it's going to fail. That was very helpful for me, feeling like oh. I was failing, to see them come up with the, 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 the best songs at the midway through the performances on Broadway. They finally put the songs in correctly and it clicked. And I, it was really inspiring to um, understand that that happens elsewhere. I'm so desperate to read that because I sort of, I love Sondheim to the end of everything. Have you, have you read the Sondheim, uh, his, his lyric books, um, Finishing a Hat and Look I Made a Hat? I have not read them from cover to cover, but I do, I can picture them in our book, bookshelf. Those are, I just, I read those two during the pandemic and I, oh. I, they were so fascinating. When you talk, he talks about his alternate lyrics, why he didn't use them, Ooh. why he did this, like, you're seeing his mind at work, which is always like, it's it's impossible to see, but he's put it all down for you. Oh my goodness, that just sounds incredible. Because him as a lyricist, and I think sometimes people are not snobby in general about lyrics, but I think lots of people maybe don't don't care about them or think they're just there to sort of carry something else forward. And I really care. There's a, um, a Twitter Sondheim lyric account and they have this weird uncanny knack of tweeting like just two perfect lines that are just, absolutely about the state of the world but maybe that's the because that's what Sondheim was always so great talking about but I met him once I have to say oh my god yeah I met him backstage Nathan Lane had invited me this was many years ago I hadn't met Nathan Lane but he, I saw a performance of the frogs that he did and he said meet me backstage and he went backstage and Stephen Sondheim was there I just didn't know what to say and I was introduced to Steve Andrew and I said I'm a great fan of your work my favorite line is her withers wither with her from into the woods about a cow and he said I like that one too 
<laughs> that was our interaction. But I just was so shocked, so shocked. What a moment, because what, what can you possibly say? But you will never forget that, and I will never forget that either. And you said the the important thing. And Well, I should have, now I know when you meet someone super famous, you, you talk about something else. They're, I mean, they love to know that you like them, but they... They, then it, you create a distance if you're too much of a fan. Well, I've done this all wrong. I shouldn't have talked to you. I shouldn't have raved to you about less than my love of less. <laughs> not Stephen Sondheim. Oh, God. Now I'm trying to think what my favourite Sondheim lyric is, which is, you know, it's super banal, but it might be you said you loved me, but were you just being kind? Which oh, I think is kind of lessy. Or am I losing my mind? Yeah. And Maria Semple said in an interview um I heard her saying on a podcast, she will stop whatever she is doing if she's in a town where there's a production of Noises Off. Like if she's driving and she sees this, like if it's a high school, she apparently, I may be misquoting her, she will drive 50, 100 miles out of her way, whatever, to watch anyone doing Noises Off. And that is exactly how I feel about Follies. Yeah, yeah. I went, I've seen that many, many times. Gypsy, I have seen in many, many iterations. And you can look on YouTube and see many, many more. And it's just... Both of those are shows that that are are fascinating to watch people, especially because Follies is so hard to do, um, mm. to see how how they try to get at it. You know, I mean, on the you know, men not writing women well. There's a man who can. Yeah, this has just been such a pleasure, and I could honestly talk to you forever and ever. And I do have to wrap this up, which breaks my heart. Firstly, I would love to invite you. Should you ever be in the UK, and if you wanted to, I would love nothing more than to take you out for a Bertie Worcester-style tea with yes. cakes and tiny sandwiches, and I promise no aunts. <laughs> <laughs> they aren't gentlemen. They <laughs> really aren't. So um, I'm just going to put that out there, and I suppose I should really finish by asking you about the books on your pile. Uh, what are you looking forward to reading next? <laughs> I've got Karen Joy. Fowler's book it's called March I think it's her new book it was on the Booker long list and I've got something called the luminous novel by Mario Levrero which someone recommended to me and I've I've started and then I had to put down because it was too heavy to travel with and it's just it's fantastic and no one I know has heard of it so those are my my next two that second one I haven't heard of the luminous novel what a title um what a title right yeah and it's like a big book, the luminous novel. It just seems so exciting. Oh, that really sounds gorgeous. I am drawn to it like a moth to a luminous thing. <laughs> this has been so fun to talk. I've had the most fun. Thank you so much. Me too. Thank you for being such a kind chatter. <laughs> <laughs> it just felt like we were having tea. Huge thanks to Andrew. Less is Lost is out now. Our hero is on the road trying to resolve a financial crisis and a family quest with the help of some special blueberries, a theatrical grant and a dog named Dolly. Truly riotous, joyous and always moving in every sense. You're going to love it. You can follow us at YBooked on social media. Look out for book recommendations, words of wisdom from old guests and occasional shelfies. We love it when you share the podcast with your friends and thanks so much to everyone who has left a five-star review. It helps other people to discover us and new books. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Andrew at acast.com booked and check out his selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. 
We'll be back soon with more book chat. But for now, I leave you with this helpful writing and reading advice from Zadie Smith. I think of reading like a balanced diet. If your sentences are baggy, too baroque, cut back on fatty Foster Wallace, say, and pick up Kafka as roughage. If your aesthetic has become so refined, it is stopping you from placing a single black mark on white paper. Stop worrying so much about what Nabokov would say. Pick up Dostoevsky, patron saint of substance over style. See you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.